Father, we are about to open your word. You cause this word to be written for our instruction and edification. You promised your word would not return void. That's including your word here in 2 Samuel 19 and 20. So, Father, we are not wasting our time. We know that. We want you to do deep work in us through this text. You laid your heart bare on these pages. So we are not opening this like any other book. This is a talking book. Now, Holy Spirit, every verse we hope to teach and every soul we hope to reach is in vain unless you move among us. God, bury our sin in the ocean of Jesus' blood. Help them to sink to the depths where Satan, the great accuser, cannot fish them out and dangle them before us. We came to eat. Feed us, heavenly provider. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Some of you are visiting today, and you may be wondering why we chose this particular text on this particular day. It seems like a strange choice, a lot of history. We don't pick out texts from week to week. We work systematically and consecutively through entire books of the Bible. That's how God wrote it, and that's how he intended it to be preached. After today, we only have three sermons left in the book of 2 Samuel. This is the, the biggest chunk we will cover in the book, 59 verses. We could be here all day. I can't recall a time in any recent history when we've had so many verses to exposit. The text covers a lot of ground. It's fast-paced, quick-hitting. This exposition is going to be unlike any other sermon in the series. Because it's fast, I want to be fast. Because it's quick-hitting, I want to be quick-hitting. I thought about splitting it up into two sermons, but I would not allow myself to do that. We need to get through 2 Samuel before my youngest child graduates high school. Here's a little preview of what's in the text. A fight in parliament, a guy eating crow, a man coming out of the woods looking like Harry and the Hendersons, looking like Bigfoot, an old man who can't see, smell, or taste anymore, but he loves God's king. A shoving match on the playground, that's all in chapter 19. In chapter 20, we have an attempted regime change, 10 imprisoned ex-wives, heads rolling, literally, a human head rolling in the dirt, guts spilling, literally human guts falling out of a body. We have a lollygagger and a puppeteer. Why do you need this text? You need to hear sermons from where Paul and Peter and James and John and all your New Testament churches heard sermons. The Old Testament was the Bible of the early church. They heard sermons from this text. Jesus read this text and no doubt heard it exposited. Jesus preached 2 Samuel. We are going to come across a lot of individuals in our study. Many we have met before in our series and some are brand new. We are going to look at each individual and see how they relate to God's king and then pull truths that will help us relate to God's king. 
59 verses. Seems like 59 people as well. A lot of people, a lot of history, and a lot about how God relates to us. Now, the context. David is an ousted king. His son Absalom led a coup and it grew. David was forced to leave. He left his palace and he fled into the wilderness. He had a few loyal supporters go with him, but by and large, the entire 12 tribes sided with Absalom. The narrator granted us the privilege to walk with David on the way out. Three people met David along the way. We call these the meetings of David. Hushai, who from all signs seemed to be an older, rather wealthy man, he lent his support for David. Ziba, who came out to tell David that his adopted son, Mephibosheth, went with Absalom. He's part of the coup. And this broke David. He thanked Ziba for informing him, and, and then he gave him all of Mephibosheth's land. Shammai, as his name is often pronounced, I, I pronounce it Shimei, I think it's closer to the Hebrew. Shimei savagely cursed David and kicked him while he was down, threw rocks and dirted him as he left Jerusalem. Once David finally reached a safe place in the wilderness, he rested, recruited, and prepared for battle with Absalom. Absalom and all 12 tribes came out against David and his men. God stepped in using David's home field advantage, the wilderness, and now Absalom is dead, hanging like a pinata in the wilderness. The coup is over, but David is still in the wilderness. Today's text shows the journey back to the palace. David walks the same road, takes the same route back in. As he returns, he has three meetings. These meetings correspond to the people he met months earlier on his way out. See, the text roughly reverses the sequence. What you see happening when David leaves Jerusalem, you see repeated when David returns to Jerusalem. On the way out, David met Hushai. Then he met Ziba. That's Mephibosheth's steward. Then he met Shimei. On the way back in, David met Shimei, Mephibosheth, and Barzali. Hushai and Barzali are both older men with property and wealth, both loyal. Neither ended up accompanying David, and both said they would be a burden to David. So that's a big picture of what's going on. Now the details. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 9. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? The 12 tribes who supported Absalom's coup 
They, they now reconvene convene in parliament to, to talk about what to do next. A civil war has just ended. How are they going to move forward? Debates begin raging about the nation's future. This is a fight in parliament. There are two groups. A pro-David group consisting of ten tribes. They wanted to bring the king in for a second enthronement. And then there was an anti-David crowd consisting of two tribes. They bought into the lies that were disseminated during Absalom's campaign. And they're still not sure they can trust King David. With Absalom dead, their hopes and dreams are dashed. The, the whole populace argues among themselves. The intertribal bickering is similar to the party spirit in our country. They can't agree on anything, especially David. They are on the parliament floor and it has potential to turn into a mass brawl. This could be like the famous brawls that erupted in the South African parliament or the Turkish parliament. Punches being thrown and chairs too. It's contentious. The civil unrest caused by Absalom's coup continues to threaten the nation's unity. David's not in Jerusalem. He's still in the wilderness. But he hears of this debate raging. So he sends messengers to break up the fight and bring unity. He attempts to convince the two tribes holding out to join in. Look at verse 12. You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? The Judean contingent and, and another tribe, evidently they needed some persuading. David doesn't sit passively by. He takes steps to acquire their support. He uses the support he has from the ten tribes to motivate Judah to follow him. You should not lag behind in making me your king. You're the tribe of Judah. I'm from Judah. You should be the first to welcome me back. David goes even further. He makes an offer, verse 13, and say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. In a, in a movement to bring national reconciliation, David says he will take Absalom's defeated general and make him his new top general. Joab is shelved. A, a, a Mesa will take his place. You remember Joab, he was the general and chief of staff all rolled into one, but David decides to part ways with him. Perhaps it's because David by now had confirmed it was Joab who killed his son Absalom. And he wants to chasten Joab. This switching of generals <laughs> would be like Abraham Lincoln offering the command to Robert E. Lee after the war. Demoting Ulysses S. Grant and putting Robert E. Lee in his place once the Civil War was over. Something like this was unheard of. This act signaled that retribution was not on David's agenda. He would come back and be king of all 12 tribes. This was a grand gesture of reconciliation. Amasa had just finished fighting a bloody war against David and his men in the wilderness. David possesses the grace to restore a broken kingdom. Look at verse 14. 
And David swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. David's appeal was effective. He captured the hearts of everyone. They were unanimous in sending for him. Come back, you and and all your servants. So David and his entourage began this 50-mile journey from Gilgal to Jerusalem. This is a kingly procession, very symbolic. Verse 16. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. Shimei hears words. He hears word that, that the tribes are finally united and they're bringing David back as king. Here's the problem for Shimei. The, the last time he saw David, he was hitting him in the head with rocks. Shimei changes his, his tune a bit here as he's as careful now as he was careless then. He comes groveling. Please put out of your mind my irresponsible outburst. Don't think badly of me, David. It, it reminds me of a, a political season in my life when my stepfather was running for sheriff in our county in North Carolina. A couple of deputies were really loyal to the current sheriff and they were politicking hard for him, saying all sorts of terrible things about our family, uh, even taking the opportunity to pull us over every chance they got. (laughs) The night my stepfather won the election, I remember my mother looking out the window and she said, there are a couple of deputy cars in the driveway. My stepfather, the sheriff-elect, went out and so did I. And sure enough, it was those two officers begging my stepdad to let them keep their jobs. My, my, my stepfather let me as a child stay there and hear some of it. And, and I'll never forget what one of them said. I will be as fiercely loyal to you as I was the previous year. They came eating crow, which is what Shimei came eating. Hey, David, I hitched my wagon to the wrong horse but I'll be as loyal to you as I was Absalom. I see David rubbing the scar on his forehead that came as a result of the rock that Shimei had thrown. Shimei candidly and humbly admits he was wrong. Shimei wasn't doing, he wasn't doing this. Hey, you, you, remember, you remember that time I hit you with the dirt ball? You know I was just joking, right? What I had meant was to hit Absalom, but my aim is always off. No, none of that. He just owned up to his sin. Uh, The ground of his petition seems to be, I have sinned. He's on his hands and knees. Knowing he deserves condemnation, he cast himself on the mercy of the king. Verse 20. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my Lord the King. Now, David's men are not inclined to be moved by this plea for mercy. Verse 21. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointing. (laughs) Oh, Abishai, 
Mr. Consistent never saw anybody whose head he would not like to lop off. Give him the law, king. He violated the law of Moses. Let's kill him. Verse 22. But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. David rebukes Abishai and forgives Shimei. David shows clemency. No executions needed to establish his kingdom. It was common in the ancient Near East for a king to dole out clemency upon his ascension to the throne. This is David's granting of the coronation day amnesty. This is a day of rejoicing, not a day of revenge. You shall not die. These are the same exact words the prophet Nathan spoke to David after his sin. David is treating others with the grace he has received. Now, in the New Testament, when Jesus preached on David, he always said this, I'm the truer and better David, the full and final David. When we see the mercy of King David, it should lead us to the mercy of King Jesus. So we arrive at this truth. Even if you have cursed King Jesus... You can still beg for mercy and be granted forgiveness. Even if you have cursed King Jesus, you can still beg for mercy and be granted forgiveness. Woodhouse, the Australian theologian, stated that those who beg for mercy from the returning Lord Jesus will find kindness greater than Shimei could know. David typified the grace of Christ toward the sinner. Christ receives even the vilest and freely pardons them. Some of you, your life has been known as one of cursing Jesus. I remember cursing God as a child, looking up to heaven and saying, I hate you. I have that vivid memory. I can take you back to the place in my backyard between my mom's house and my aunt's house. Grace isn't for those who have never cursed the king. Grace is for those who now submit to the king. Some of you have been living in opposition to the king's rule. You, like Shimei, rejected his rule in your life. And you may be wondering if you've thrown too many rocks to be forgiven. Or you say, Kyle, I've done worse than throw rocks at God's king. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how many one-night stands. You don't know how far I've been. You don't know how dirty I live. You don't know. Stop. You don't know the king's grace. There is no one too bad for Jesus to save. He reaches way down. You can't out his mercy. His mercy is deeper than your sin. Your sin, what are we saying? Your sins, they are many. His mercy is more. You are not outside the reach of God's grace. And this is why we don't skip passages around here. Because some of you Shemais need to hear this. According to an earlier verse, 
Shimei waded across the Jordan to meet the king. He was soaking wet while begging for mercy. He wasn't much to look at, looking like a wet dog. But that doesn't matter. The basis of mercy is not on how well you look. After Shimei received mercy, McCarter, the commentator, says Shimei had his sizable welcome party carry David and his men over the Jordan on their shoulders so that David would not get wet. The Jordan River was wider and deeper in ancient times than today. It was also surrounded by dense thickets on the banks. Getting across the Jordan was very dangerous. But receiving mercy makes you take risks for your king. Now, I must pause here and say that some commentators are unimpressed by Shimei's repentance. They don't believe it was genuine, heartfelt. They contest Shimei was simply eager to secure his place in the new kingdom. It seems like worldly regret to them, not biblical repentance. That he's undergone no serious change of heart. He merely realized his tactical error. His repentance was merely convenient. And you may think, well, that's, that's a very cynical view. Well, they say that because at the end of David's life, while on his deathbed, David gives Solomon a hit list. And Shammai is on it. David says, make sure he dies violently. Apparently, Shammai will later resist David's reign once again. Throws rocks at him for a second time. David would not kill him because he gave an oath that he would not, but he commanded Solomon to after his death. Do we know if Shammai's, Shammai's repentance was sincere at this moment? We don't know. Only God knows. Here's what we do know. Unlike David, Jesus can see through false repentance. A king is coming who can discern true repentance from false repentance. Unlike David, Jesus can see through false repentance. A king is coming who can discern true repentance from false repentance. The king is merciful to those who submit to him. But this was either a faux submission or a temporary submission. Listen to me. If your repentance is because you did something stupid and you'll try anything to get rid of the consequences, Jesus sees through that. You may fool David, you may fool us, but you will not fool King Jesus. To those who were faking it, you must realize you can't play Jesus. He will look at you one day and say, I never knew you. You were never truly broken over your sin. You, you wanted a better marriage. You wanted to raise moral kids. You wanted to, to be looked at highly upon by people in your city. You wanted community. But you never wanted Jesus Christ as your king. Unlike David, Jesus can see through false repentance. King Jesus has never been fooled by a false profession of faith. Repentance is not when you cry. 
Repentance is when you change. Shimei had temporary change, but not lasting change. Satan lies to you and says, yeah, your repentance was genuine even though your actions reverted back. That's a lie. If, if I preach a gospel that doesn't involve repentance, it's not the gospel. The first man came out to meet David and eat some crow. The second man came out to meet David while looking like Bigfoot. Look at verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet or trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. His, his toes are, his toenails are, it just disgusts me to even say this to you. His toenails are long and dirty. He says, I've been mourning since you left. The entire time you've been in the wilderness, I've been mourning. Not taking a bath, not cutting my nails, not washing my hair, not brushing my teeth. I haven't worn deodorant since you left. David says, yes, yes, I'm aware. I did all this to show my allegiance to you. Mephibosheth, in doing all this action, he's declaring himself ceremonially unclean. And it was risky to mourn in the palace of Absalom. But Mephibosheth's allegiance rested with God's king. This is all news to David. He's a bit mystified. He's believed for weeks and months that Mephibosheth, his adopted crippled son, had betrayed him. That's what Ziba told him on the way out of Jerusalem. Mephibosheth begins to unpack to David what really happened. Here's the other side of the story. I wanted to... I wanted to go out and give you all the bags of groceries when you were forced to leave Jerusalem. But Ziba kicked me down and it wouldn't allow me to ride along with him. You know I am dependent on others for transportation. I can't walk. I can't move. These legs don't work. He slandered me. He lied about me. I would never betray you. You gave me a place at your table. What more could I ever ask for? I was marked for death. But you saved me. Now David faces conflicting testimonies. Counterclaims. He's not sure who to believe. Ziba is there too. The text reveals that earlier. David gives his ruling in verse 29. And the king said to Mephibosheth. Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. His tone sounds a bit harsh to me. David decides on a 50-50 split. First I gave it all to you, then I gave it all to Ziba, split it, and let's keep walking. David either couldn't discern who was telling the truth, or he didn't want to spend the time to find it out. Like a parent who does not have the energy to get down to the bottom of it, just split the candy bar. Maybe, maybe David didn't want to alienate the Zeba contingency. 
which seemed to be quite large. Maybe David's valuing unifying the kingdom over this specific case. Verse 30. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Mephibosheth responds in great grace. As far as I am concerned, he can have it all. He, he rises above the financial considerations. I'm loyal to you regardless of personal benefit. Personally, I think David mishandles this case. Clearly, Mephibosheth is telling the truth. His disheveled appearance proves it. David has credible physical evidence and credible oral evidence. Ziba is a liar and traitor out for his own gain. Why is he receiving anything? David missed it. He judged wrongly. He mishandled it. But his judgment in this case points us to a king who will never mishandle anything. David can't render a perfect verdict. But God will one day send a king who judges rightly. David can't render a perfect verdict. But God will one day send a king who judges rightly. Some of you, some of you have fallen victim to an imperfect judge. A verdict that went the wrong way. Dear one, there is coming a perfect judge. For those of you who have been taken advantage of, justice went unserved. You must realize King Jesus will settle every case and no wrong verdicts will be given. He'll levy out perfect punishment. Mephibosheth at least lived. Oh, and by the way, Mephibosheth, the cripple, will enter Jerusalem with King David. But when he does, he's still crippled. When Jesus takes cripples into his kingdom, they are no longer cripples. <laughs> Bring on the greater David. We long for his return. David has three meetings. The first guy, eating crow. The second guy, looking like a millennial. He hasn't bathed, hasn't washed his hair, doesn't know how to spell hygiene. He looks homeless. My wife, I shouldn't say this. <laughs> I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, my, uh, my wife texted me, why do all these millennials look homeless? And I just said, we're getting old. We're getting old. Uh, the, the third guy, walking with a cane, holding his false teeth. Verse 31. Now Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Roglam, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. In the previous two meetings, each one needed reconciliation. No reconciliation needed here. They are good friends. This man was loyal to David while he left Jerusalem and he was loyal to David while he again entered Jerusalem. He makes this 20 to 25 mile walk downhill eager to support the king. 
He never fought in a battle for King David. But he was a wealthy man and supported the king financially. David invites the old man to go back to the royal palace and live his days out in ease. David wants to repay him for his previous kindness shown. You gave me food in the wilderness, now come and eat my food in the palace. David rewarded those who remained loyal to him. The old man tells David, I am too old to enjoy the pleasures of the palace. I can't hear the voice of singing women. I can't taste my food. I can't smell palace flowers. My deteriorating health doesn't allow those pleasures anymore. I'd just be a burden to you. I've become like a child in my old age. I repeat myself. I wear adult diapers. I'm on the other side of things. Life has shifted for me. King, you owe me nothing. It's been a joy to serve you. Now I'm going to go home and die in my own bed. David agrees to take his son in his place. They embrace the two old men and they say their goodbyes. Barzillai, 80 years old, and David in his 70s. You know what I love about this? Bar Barzillai was not a grumpy old man. He was a joyful old man. Be an aged man like that. Be an aged woman like that. I can't see, I can't smell, I can't taste anymore, but I love God's king. When you go out, go out serving God's king. When you go out, go out serving God's king. Spend the balance of your days and your talents and your energies in service to this king. Let your last years be your happiest years because Jesus has remained faithful to you through all your years. Let's look at the chapter 19 breakdown. Israel and Judah deciding about whether to bring back the king. Then we have the three meetings, Shimei, Mephibosheth, Barzillai. Then Israel and Judah disputing about how to bring back the king. So notice the chapter here, there's bookends, deciding about whether to bring back the king, and then disputing about how to bring back the king. Many scholars believe David made a first-class political blunder when he catered to Judah earlier by pitching to them on the basis that he was one of them. He, he polarizes rather than unifies the other tribes. He should have never appealed to the Judites. He, he, he should have let them come along in their own time. His politicking smacked of gross favoritism. Verse 40. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimam, that's Barzillai's son, went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. David's escort to Jerusalem consisted of all of Judah and half of Israel. All of the two tribes and half of the ten tribes. So they start arguing over the honor of accompanying the king. Most arguments can be boiled down to this. Me first! 
whether it's on a playground or at your job or here in the text. Verse 41. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan? <laughs> the ten tribes are accusing the two tribes of kidnapping the king. Apparently, David left Mahanaim and, and came to the Jordan without leaving enough time for the ten tribes to come and accompany him. And they feel offended. They feel excluded from the march back to Jerusalem. Verse 42. All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel. Because the king is our close relative, why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? You see what they're slight. You see what they're doing? Slight. They're, they're, they're rubbing salt into the wound. No reason to be angry. Just because David loves us more and he's one of us doesn't mean we've been able to experience special privileges. They inflame the situation even further. The ten tribes contest that there is more of them so they should have more people in the parade that walks David back into Jerusalem. I mean, this is really just middle school stuff going on. It's tribal jealousy and pride. It, it's, it's ten of our tribes and only two of yours. We own 83% of this king. The, the verbal shoving match on the playground continues. I guess the whole walk, we have no record of it ending. David is holding this kingdom together with paper mache. Sure, there are pockets of reconciliation, but many things are just papered over. David can't hold these tribes together, which points us forward. Unlike David, Jesus is a king who can not only unite the tribes, but unite the nations. Who can not only unite the tribes, but unite the nations. King Jesus will bring some from all playgrounds into his kingdom. He's a global king. Jesus prayed that his followers would all be one. Jesus will accomplish on his return what David failed to accomplish. God, all throughout history, has been gathering and calling a people to himself. This is why we're teaching a Sunday seminar called Missions. Missions doesn't belong merely to the book of Acts. Missions belongs to the Old Testament. Missions belongs to God. Chapter 19, welcoming the king. Chapter 20, resisting the king. Chapter 19, welcoming the king. Chapter 20, resisting the king. I am going to speed up, friends. I, I must. I will cover this chapter in 10 minutes. Maybe 12. Maybe 15. 2 Samuel 20, verse 1. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. Apparently, before David arrives back in Jerusalem, another Benjaminite, like Saul, starts wreaking havoc. 
He begins making disparaging comments about the king. Sheba is his name and slander is his game. Sheba and his crew want nothing to do with David. How are we to view Sheba? Well, the narrator takes the guesswork out. He's a scoundrel. The text calls him worthless. He's good for nothing. His rebellion comes directly on the heels of Absalom's. He attempts to build on the rift that already exists between the tribes. He's an opportunist. He's a rat. He wants to lead the discontented people. The 12 tribes are again on the verge of another civil war. And it looks like this rebellion is going to be something. The king eventually makes it to Jerusalem, accompanied, of course, by a huge entourage. Once David reaches the palace, he has to sort out his harem. David should not have had concubines, but he did. When the coup drove him away from the palace, he left ten concubines to keep the house. Absalom, when he took the palace, laid with all of those ten concubines as a sign. I took your palace and I took your women. It was a common practice in that day. David gets back and he must make a decision on what to do with these ten ladies. Verse 3. And David came to his house at Jerusalem and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in the house under guard and provided for them. But he did not go into them. That's a euphemism. So, so they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Now, scholars are split on if David imprisoned them or more protected them. I lean toward the protection viewpoint. All these women were violated by Absalom. You remember what happened to Tamar when she was violated earlier in the book? She was shut up to live desolate the rest of her days. I think that's what's happening here. After a violation like that, it was common practice. Either way, these poor women passed their bland days shut up as de facto widows. <laughs> David disappoints us again. He was not a king who could wipe away their tears. We need a better king. There is coming one. Like these women, did some man do something to you and no one has been able to wipe the tears since? No counselor, no pastor, no friend. There is coming a king to wipe away your tears. He promised that's one of the first things he will do when he returns. It's okay to weep now. You'll be dancing later. Now that David's dealt with the concubines, he wants to deal with this rebellion before it gets out of hand like it did with Absalom. He needs to squash it quickly. He calls Amasa, his new general. He says, muster an army. Speedily pursue that rat Sheba and engage. Now, sidebar here. David put Amasa as the top general to gain political clout. That was his reason for doing that. That was a bad move. He was a bad general. He just lost a war even though he commanded the larger army. In the text, Sheba failed to meet David's timeline of three days in gathering this army. He didn't keep the rendezvous. The failure to appear set David on alarm. Sheba, Sheba was a lollygagger. 
He didn't show up on time. He was slow in the formation of the army. The reason? Maybe he wasn't able to recruit the men. Maybe he met resistance from commanders who didn't trust him. Maybe his delay was incompetence or disloyalty. We aren't sure. Either way, it forced David's hand to seek an alternative. Verse 6. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. So you, you have nothing here about Amasa. D David, David did not turn to his old general, Joab. He turned to Joab's brother, Abishai. Abishai, do what Amasa is, is failing to do. Kill Sheba. I'm not worried about the lollygagger right now. Go kill Sheba. Joab and his men, his division, go out with Abishai, and I think probably unknown to David. What's the mission? Find the rat Sheba. No word on the lollygagger. No command to find the lollygagger. Joab lets his brother Abishai lead for a time until they finally catch up with um, Amasa? <laughs> then Joab steps up and he takes charge. Leader, leaders can't stand back and watch something fail. They must take over. Amasa sees Joab. They greet one another and while they do, Joab deliberately allowed his sword to fall out. Verse 9. And Joab said to Amasa, it is, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Now, grabbing the beard is unattested in other places in Scripture. I don't know this tradition. Um, one hand has the beard, and the other hand, Jacob picks, Joab picks up the dropped sword. Notice verse 10. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Joab killed him swiftly and mercilessly. I'm not sure if it was some type of special training to know how to kill a man quickly, because a second blow wasn't needed. He was dead. This was a cold and calculated kiss bring him in for the kiss give him the kill Joab gutted him like a deer he disemboweled him you could tell what he had for lunch after Joab was finished with him plunged the, the dagger into his belly and sliced up his intestines spill out on the ground Joab was an efficient killer he killed Abner he killed Uriah he killed Absalom. Now he kills Amasa. He knew no other way. Muscle and blood. Joab is intensely loyal and completely uncontrollable. Ever met anyone like that? They are intensely loyal but completely uncontrollable. He's ever hacking and slicing away to keep his position unrivaled. David never wanted Amasa killed. They were not told to find him. One of Joab's soldiers took post over the dead body and called out, Joab is now back in charge of the army. Amasa lay wallowing in his own blood in the middle of the road. All the troops pursuing Sheba slowed down and gawked 
This is the original rubbernecking. They are aghast at the sight of their former general. And the dead body is slowing up the progress. So they throw it in a ditch and cover it up. The pursuit of the rat Sheba resumes. The chase is on. Sheba's rebellion at first looks impressive. But it peters out. It dies down. It's only his clan now, the Bickrites. He had not been highly successful in his coup. David's men track him down to a little village called Abel. They have him cornered, holed up in the city. They besieged the city, meaning they surrounded the city, cut off food and water supplies. And in an effort to breach, Joab begins battering the wall, pounding it with weapons. The power of the battering ram was Joab's way. And there was a shrewd woman. We are not told her name. But while the battering is going on, she steps out. I see her, I see her as the head of the local chamber of commerce. She comes out with her little brochures. She walks up to Joab. Oh, here's a cup of coffee. Hey, you, you look tired. May I have a word? He grants it. I'm sure there was some way to identify her as someone with clout in the city. Verse 18. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settle the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? <laughs> I like this. She's quiet, but loud. I open this brochure. This city is Abel. This, this city is highly respected in Israel. She quotes a proverb, not an inspired one, but a common one. An ancient proverb about the city. It's known as a city where you go to get wisdom. It's long been famous. She talked to Joab in poetry. Three lines of, of parallel poetry in the original language. People come to this city to get wisdom to get answers and now you want to destroy it this is God's heritage don't tear it down she's implying an attack on the city is an attack on the Lord himself Joab denies the accusation I'm interested only in apprehending Sheba hand him over and him over only and we'll get out of here she'll do anything to save her city she wants to avert the general massacre She's pleased to meet the stipulations and offer up the head of Sheba if that will stop them from battering the walls of the city. She's playing a diplomatic role. You'll have his head in 30 minutes. She clearly has some pool in the city. She went back in to tell the people her plan. And I'm imagining Joab and all the warrior men outside talking. <laughs> you think they'll go for it? You think she can talk them into it? Just then. A head comes shooting over the walls and then rolls right in front of his feet. Hmm. I guess they went for it. Joab picks up the head by the hair and walks back to Jerusalem. King David could hardly welcome Joab with open arms, but he did save the kingdom. Notice in the closing verses we have David's court history. I'm not going to read it all, but, but I want you to notice that it's David's court history, but David is not mentioned, and Joab is mentioned first. 
Joab is leading the cabinet, not David. Joab is the puppeteer. Joab didn't have to be up front. He wanted to be the power behind the man. He didn't want to be the king. He wanted to work the strings. Joab, listen church, Joab recklessly working for the kingdom of God, but not in the kingdom himself. Recklessly working for the kingdom of God, but not in the kingdom himself. Joab represents someone who doesn't want God's kingdom. He wants to use God's kingdom. How can it help me further my agenda? Now let me ask you a closing question. What happens to the heads of those who oppose God's king? What happens to the heads of those who oppose God's king? Well, they get beheaded. Isn't that right, Goliath? In our text, a woman saved the kingdom. She's nameless. She's a godly woman. We know that because she's the only one in the chapter to, to mention Yahweh. When a wise woman kills a foolish man in the Bible, when a wise woman kills a foolish man in the Bible, you can expect it to be a head wound. Why is that? The promise from the beginning was that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The woman has her revenge on the serpent once more in our chapter. We keep reliving Genesis 3.15 promise all throughout God's unfolding drama of redemption. Let's pray together. Jesus, you died for us by name. Not for a cluster of people over there, but for us by name. That is enough to sustain us this week. Thank you for the supernatural work of feeding us with your word just now. Now please use this text to mold us into the image of Christ. Amen.